This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 105, The Sauter Family. The bitter cold of the West Virginia winter settled over the town of Fayetteville like a heavy shroud. Snowflakes danced in the night sky, adding an eerie beauty to the scene. It was December 24th, 1945, a night that would forever haunt a family, a town, a nation. George and Jenny Sauter, Italian immigrants who had made their home in Fayetteville, had built a life centered around their ten children. The Sauter household was bustling with excitement, with the scent of freshly baked cookies wafting through the air. George and Jenny, dedicated parents, had worked hard to provide a warm and loving home for their children. As the evening wore on, the Sauter children reveled in the joy of the holiday season. They eagerly anticipated the gifts that would magically appear under the tree the next morning. Sylvia, The youngest, at just two years old, giggled as she watched her siblings hang stockings by the fireplace. The Sauter home was alive with laughter. Little did they know that a sinister presence lurked just beyond their cozy haven. As the clock struck midnight, a darkness descended upon their lives that would shatter their hopes and dreams. The Sauter parents had already retired to bed when the piercing sound of breaking glass jolted them awake. The crackling of flames engulfed their ears, and panic instantly gripped their hearts. They sprang out of bed, their minds clouded with confusion and fear as they rushed to wake their children. Amidst the chaos and disarray, George and Jenny realized that their home had become a fiery inferno the flames hungrily devouring everything in their path. Smoke filled the air, choking their desperate cries for help. The Sodders fought through the smoke-filled hallways, their voices calling out the names of their children. As they reached the staircase leading to the children's bedrooms, their hopes turned to despair. The flames had engulfed the stairway, blocking their path and sealing off any chance of reaching their little ones. As Jenny, baby in arm, and their three eldest children dragged George out of the front door, the flames danced triumphantly, casting an eerie glow over the devastated landscape. But George had no intention of giving up there. He desperately battled to stop the inferno and save his family. 
but he found that every method at his disposal had been somehow compromised. A nearby water barrel was completely frozen over, its contents unusable. His ladder had somehow disappeared from the backyard, and when he tried to start both of his trucks to back them up to the front of the house in an attempt to reach the upper windows, he found neither would start. It was only 45 minutes before the solder house collapsed in on itself, its internal structure completely decimated by the intensity of the searing blaze. Desperation etched deep lines into the parents' faces as they realized their children were trapped, their cries for help silenced by the merciless fire. The fire raged on throughout the night, leaving behind a chilling silence as the sun began to rise. The devastated parents, their bodies weary and their hearts heavy, watched as the remains of their once vibrant home now crumbled into a heap of charred rubble. But as they watched on while the volunteer fire department, who had arrived no less than seven hours after the blaze began, sifted through the rubble, an agonizing realization took hold of their shattered souls. No trace of their children remained. They clung to each other, their grief overwhelming. The fire had spared no evidence, no remains to confirm the fate of their beloved offspring. The absence of their children pierced their hearts and questions swirled in their mind. According to the authorities, 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty were dead. But how could the fire have been so destructive? Where were their precious little ones? As the days turned into weeks, the Sauter family and the community were gripped by a nightmarish puzzle. The official investigation into the fire pointed to faulty wiring as the cause, a tragic accident that claimed the lives of the Sauter children. But they refused to accept this explanation. Deep within their souls, they knew there was more to the story. Their determination to uncover the truth propelled the Sauter family into a relentless search. They began by sifting through the debris of their burnt home, desperately hoping to find any sign, however small, that their children had survived. But to their dismay, the remnants offered no solace. There were no charred remains, no fragments of clothing, no toys or personal belongings that could attest to the presence of their children. It was as if they had vanished without a trace. Soon, a chilling series of events began to unfold. Strangers came forward, claiming to have witnessed something peculiar on that fateful night. They spoke of seeing a strange car parked along the road, its occupants watching the solder house intently. The sightings grew in number, igniting a spark of hope within the solder family. Could it be that their children were not lost in the fire, but were taken away? They couldn't ignore the mounting evidence suggesting foul play. They turned to the authorities, urging them to reopen the investigation. However, their pleas fell on deaf ears. The official stance remained unchanged. The fire was an accident, and the children had perished within its deadly grip. Undeterred, 
George and Jenny embarked on their own quest for justice. They hired private investigators to dig deeper, to uncover the truth that eluded them. The investigators discovered disturbing inconsistencies in the official reports. They found no evidence for faulty wiring, as the authorities had claimed. Instead, they uncovered signs of arson, suggesting a deliberate act of destruction. With this newfound revelation, the Sauter family's conviction grew stronger. They were convinced that their children had been taken from them, that someone had plotted to extinguish their lives. But who and why? As they delved further into the mystery, a name emerged. A man who had held a grudge against George Sauter was an old business rival, someone who had threatened George and his family in the past. The investigators dug deeper into this lead, unearthing a tangled web of animosity and vengeance. But despite their efforts, the answers remained elusive. The man simply denied any involvement, leaving the Sauter family to face an agonizing dead end. The case began to fade from public attention, slipping into the shadows of forgotten tragedies. Years turned to decades, and the Sauter parents grew older, their hearts burdened with sorrow that refused to fade. Yet they refused to let their children's memory be extinguished. George and Jenny fought tirelessly to keep the case alive, erecting billboards along the highways, displaying the faces of their missing children. They hoped that someone, somewhere, would hold the key to unlocking the truth. The truth, it seemed, was not ready to remain hidden forever. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, a letter arrived at the Sauter home. It was postmarked from Kentucky and contained a photograph that sent shivers down their spines. The photograph showed a young man, resembling their missing son, grown and mature. The back of the photograph bore a cryptic message. Louis Sauter. I love Brother Frankie. I-L-I-L Boys A-9-0-1-3-2 Or 3-5 The Sodders were filled with a renewed sense of hope. Could their sons still be alive after all these years? They shared the photograph with investigators and launched a new wave of inquiries. They hired a private detective to follow the leads to track down the mysterious sender of the photograph. But just as it seemed they were on the cusp of a breakthrough, the trail once again turned cold. The identity of the sender remained a mystery, and the hopes of reunion with their missing children began to fade. The Sauter family, with heavy hearts, realized that they might never find the closure they so desperately sought. As the years went by, George and Jenny Sauter passed away, their souls burdened by the weight of their unanswered questions. The responsibility of carrying on their quest fell upon their remaining children. The siblings, bound together by a shared tragedy, refused to let the fire consume their family's legacy. They continued to investigate, tirelessly pursuing any lead that surfaced. They traveled across the country, following whispers and rumors, talking to anyone who claimed to have information about their missing siblings. But the truth remained a ghostly figure, dancing just out of reach. 
Along the way, they encountered strange and unsettling encounters. Some witnesses spoke of secret societies and human trafficking rings that lurked in the shadows of society. Others hinted at the involvement of corrupt officials, complicit in a cover-up of unimaginable proportions. The more they dug, the more tangled the web of conspiracy became. But amidst the darkness, yet another glimmer of hope emerged. A woman stepped forward, claiming to be the long-lost sister of the Sodder children. She bore a striking resemblance to the siblings, and her story seemed to align with the family's accounts of that tragic Christmas Eve. It seemed like a breakthrough, a revelation that could finally bring the truth to light. However, as the siblings embraced their newfound sister, doubts began to creep in. Inconsistencies emerged in her story, and her motives seemed increasingly dark. The Sauter family, no strangers to deception, couldn't help but question her authenticity. Had they stumbled upon yet another dead end, another cruel twist in their agonizing journey? Their skepticism grew, leading them to confront the woman with their doubts. Anger and frustration clouded her eyes as she vehemently denied any deceit. But the damage had been done. The fragile hope that had flickered within their hearts was extinguished, replaced by a deeper sense of loss. They realized that the road to the truth was fraught with peril, a treacherous path that twisted and turned, leading them in circles. They had been battered and bruised by false leads and broken promises. Today, the story of the Sauter family remains an unsolved mystery, etched into the annals of history. The haunting image of their lost children forever frozen in time, a testament to the family's enduring love and unyielding determination. But as time passed, the memory of that fateful Christmas Eve threatened to fade into the realm of forgotten tales. But in the darkest corners of the early internet, among those who dared to question the official narrative, a glimmer of hope again flickered. A spark of curiosity and a thirst for truth lingered, ready to be ignited once again. It was within this climate of uncertainty that a group of amateur investigators emerged. Driven by their obsession with the Sodder case, they embarked on a relentless quest to unearth the secrets that lay buried beneath layers of deception and neglect. They pored over old newspaper clippings, sifted through dusty archives, and tracked down anyone who might hold a piece of the puzzle. Their investigations led them to witnesses who had remained silent for decades. Fearful of reprisal, or simply resigned to the belief that the truth would never be uncovered. But as the investigators dug deeper, a pattern began to emerge. A pattern that seemed to point to a sinister plot, far more complex than anyone had imagined. One witness, an elderly woman living on the outskirts of town, revealed a chilling encounter she had witnessed on the night of the fire. She claimed to have seen figures lurking in the shadows near the solder house their silhouettes obscured by the darkness. Their presence had unsettled her, and she had watched with a sense of foreboding as the flames engulfed the home. Another witness, a neighbor, shared a disturbing account of his experience at the scene of the fire. He had been among the first responders, 
attempting to assist George in his battle against the inferno that consumed the Sodder home. But as he worked tirelessly to extinguish the flames, something caught his attention. The absence of the sound of children crying or screaming. It was as if the house had been devoid of life, an observation that left a deep imprint on his memory. Armed with these newfound testimonies, the investigators delved into the official records of the fire investigation, seeking any clues that may have been overlooked. They discovered a startling fact, the absence of any human remains at the site. Despite the intense heat of the fire, not a single bone fragment of the children's bodies had been found. The absence of physical evidence fueled speculation and theories. Some hypothesized that the fire had been a cover-up, a smokescreen to conceal the true fate of the Sodder children. Others believed that the children had been taken, their identities erased, and their lives forever altered. In their pursuit of the truth, the web sleuths seemed to have stumbled upon a lead that promised to unlock the secrets of the Sodder case. They discovered an unmarked grave in a nearby cemetery, a burial plot with no name, no date, and no explanation. Intrigued by this mysterious omission, they began to unravel the threads that connected the grave to the Sodder family. The investigators uncovered records of a local coroner who had been present at the scene of the fire. His name was implicated in several questionable cases, raising suspicions about his involvement in the disappearance of the Sodder children. Rumors circulated of his ties to a nefarious organization, one that operated in the shadows far from the prying eyes of the law. Driven by their growing conviction, the investigators sought to exhume the unidentified grave, hoping to find the missing pieces of the puzzle buried within the earth. With the aid of forensic experts, they carefully unearthed the remains, their hearts racing with anticipation. As the coffin was opened, a heavy silence descended upon the gathered group. What they discovered within sent chills down their spines. The coffin contained not the remains of a child, but instead a stack of old clothing, placed meticulously to mimic the form of a body. It was a macabre and deliberate deception, a cruel manipulation that further deepened the enigma surrounding the Sodder family. Undeterred by this disheartening discovery, the investigators pressed on, determined to expose the truth. They widened their search, reaching out to distant relatives, old neighbors, and anyone who might hold a clue to the fate of the children. Their efforts led them to a retired police officer who had worked on the case years ago. He hesitantly revealed that he had been approached by an anonymous informant shortly after the fire. The informant claimed to have information regarding the children and their disappearance. According to the retired officer, the informant alleged that the children had been abducted and whisked away into an undisclosed location. The motive behind the abduction remained murky, but the informant hinted to a dark conspiracy involving powerful individuals who sought to silence the Sodder family. The investigators, driven by this revelation, sought to track down the anonymous informant, but their efforts proved futile. The informant had vanished without a trace, leaving behind nothing but a haunting sense of missed opportunity 
Frustration mounted as the investigators encountered roadblock after roadblock, their pursuit of the truth seemingly thwarted at every turn. It appeared that the forces protecting the secrets of the Sodder case were formidable, their reach stretching far and wide. In January of 1997, a woman on her deathbed confessed to having knowledge about the Sodder children. She claimed to have been a member of the clandestine organization responsible for their abduction. In her final moments, the woman revealed a shocking revelation. The Sodder children had been taken to ensure their silence. They had inadvertently witnessed a crime that implicated individuals of immense power, individuals who would stop at nothing to protect their secrets. The woman's confession sent shockwaves through the investigators, leaving them grappling with the enormity of what they had uncovered. The magnitude of the conspiracy surrounding the Sodder case became all too real. With the woman's confession as their guide, the investigators continued their pursuit, unraveling the intricate threads of the secret organization. As they dug deeper, they encountered whispers of corruption, of influential figures who had manipulated the truth, ensuring that the fate of the children remained shrouded in darkness. But despite their relentless efforts, investigators faced an insurmountable challenge. The powerful forces protecting the secrets of the Sodder case, be they natural or otherwise, proved formidable their grip on the truth unyielding. The answers they sought remain tantalizingly out of reach. Decades have passed since that fateful Christmas Eve when the Sodder family's lives were forever shattered. The fire that ravaged their home, the missing children, the unanswered questions continue to haunt the town of Fayetteville. The town never fully recovered from the tragedy and whispers of the Sodder case still float through the air like a ghostly presence. The Sodder children, their fate unknown, exist in a realm between memory and reality. Their absence is a void that can never be filled, a wound that refuses to heal. But their spirits live on, forever intertwined with the tapestry of the strange and unsettling. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. All right. Another week, another dollar. Am I right? So right. <laughs> <laughs> what am I talking about? We're not making dollars. Uh, not yet. We could be. <laughs> we could be making all the dollars. Except for you sweet, sweet patrons. Everyone else, go to patreon.com slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling and get subscribed also if you're interested in supporting and you know sporting that sweet sweet swag follow the link in the episode description or on any of our socials or just our link tree we'll uh provide you all the information to that sweet sweet swag yeah i mean we honestly have some of the sickest merch we do and, and i was about to uh i'm about to upload a new well it's the uh, fire earth Oh my gosh, the Friday Night Fright artwork has a t-shirt design, so that'll be coming out, probably coming out this week. Yes. Awesome. Exciting announcement. Yeah. Well, you know what? Exciting show. Am I right? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. Uh, uh, uh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you think of the uh, the Sodder family? I, I have a lot of questions, and 
it is good a, because I don't have a lot of answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I knew the just the basics around it, uh, starting you know before obviously going over the story and everything. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that like were pointed out. I don't know if you pointed them out in the story for dramatic effect, or if they're going to lead to some heated discussion. So we'll see. Okay, yeah, we'll see. Did you have questions right off the bat? Well, my first question is so when when of course like the stairs they're ablaze and he can't you know can't get up the stairs to save the kids. My well, I was actually wondering you know because they had mentioned. There being no sound, of, you know, not being able to hear the kids' cr- cries and everything. So I was curious yeah. about that. But also the fact that the ladder was gone. Yeah. And so yeah. did, did they There's ever some find the ladder? Shit, dude. Yes, they did. Okay. It was like 70 feet from the house at the bottom of a ravine at the back of their property. See, that's a little weird. Yeah, it's very weird. Like, it makes me wonder, like, did these kids just plan their escape? Right. They're like, we're getting out of here. We don't need a loving and supporting family. On Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> or did someone find the ladder and drug all the kids, like, whatever, sedate them Hold something. them out the window. Then hold them the out the window down the ladder, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's weird, dude. It's the thing with the stairs. Okay, so, like, you have to picture the layout of the house because the parents are on the second floor. Okay. They're sleeping on the second floor. The kids that vanished or died depending on how you look at it right their their bedroom space was the attic ah okay was like the third floor of the house basically because i know they said like they pulled him and ran out the front door but never mentioned going down the stairs to the front door right so i wasn't i kind of left that out for like to prevent confusion in the moment in the story because without having to explain you know that it's three levels and yeah i mean for the for the story there was really no purpose in explaining that last you know that that little part yeah but so they come out of the bedroom and their oldest daughter um marion she was 19 she had been asleep on the couch in the living room downstairs okay um and when they come out of the bedroom the wife jenny she sees that the fire seems to be i don't know she always said that like that that she could tell the fire was centered around his george's office and it had like the phone box was in there and the like the fuse boxes for the house and all that were were in that room i found it odd that a right working family in the 40s with 10 children had the room to give their dad an office i mean this has to be a big yeah. ass house maybe that's just some jealousy on my part <laughs> you know because i have half as many kids and i don't get an office right yeah um, i mean that's weird. but like i don't know that just seemed odd to me because i've i looked and i couldn't find like an actual like floor plan of the house anywhere yeah because i would love to have seen that yeah i mean that would that, that would also help to kind of put things into perspective a bit more yeah like especially so the third story basically yeah you kind of just have to piece together visuals from different accounts and get an idea of how the house was laid out but like um they come out the fire's there and they turn to go up the stairs to get the kids and the the stairs are on fire yeah also so yeah yeah it's just i don't know like that that definitely stood out because 
I mean, that to me seems seems like there's something more here. Yeah. And again, my mind instantly went to maybe the kids decided to, you know, they were out. To run off. Right. But I mean, like, what what would be the motive there? That's true. That, you know, that's, especially yeah, on that's Christmas. That's a good question. I mean. Yeah. And by all accounts, they were, like, super excited. Um, right. Marian, I mean, the 19-year-old as, as sister. you pointed out, they were very anticipated. They're, they were very yeah. much anticipating <laughs> Christmas yeah. morning. Yeah. Uh, but they like, okay. So let's go through what happened that night before. Okay? okay. So actually, let's just go back. So like a month before the fire, George has this weird run-in with an insurance salesman. All right. Okay. Who comes to the door? George, by the way, I should say, we're going back even farther. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's a, there's a lot to this. Okay. So I mean, that's, yeah, that's fine. Let's paint a picture. George and Jenny had both immigrated from Italy. Right. Right. Separately. And they met in America. Huh. Um, that's convenient. Yeah. I thought maybe so, they immigrated together. No, they, um, George actually immigrated when he was only 13. Oh, wow. So he had been in America for quite a while. Um, but he immigrated with his older brother. Like okay. they came together and then his brother literally just turned around and went back to Italy and <laughs> left his 13 year old brother in America. Man, imagine that just being a 13 year old kid in a country you're very yeah unfamiliar with and barely speak the language. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you're 13. I mean, well, I guess in the forties, the 13 was basically 25. <laughs> yeah, basically. So you know, you get married at that age. I imagine a 13-year-old in 1945 is actually harder than the average 25-year-old now. Oh, I guarantee it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, those those are the kids were that were joining armies. and Yeah. Like, well, to your point, at 13, he started working on the railroad. Okay. Yeah. See? And that, that's what he did. He the, railroad on the railroad definitely makes you hard. Yeah. That's, that's a hard... That's that's a hard job, dude. Right. Um, but by the time he was in his, like, I think he was 19 or 20, he ended up starting his own haulage firm. So basically like a short run trucking company. Okay. Yeah. Um, mostly for construction companies. He would just like haul materials for them. But he, he sort of developed this um, bad reputation among other Italian immigrants because he was very outspoken outspoken about his hatred of Mussolini who was really popular among Italian immigrants in like the lead up to World War II yeah like he was I mean he was a dictator we know he's awful now he's like part of the well the axis he of evil you know but fled the country for a reason yeah I'm sure that was part of it yeah that's fair but it didn't make him popular among the other Italian immigrants yeah um, oh, that makes sense yeah because yeah like i said at the time he mussolini was like i know it's sort of the you get that a lot like you get immigrant populations are split right like you get half the people who came over here for opportunity and half the people who fled there to to get away from whatever right for sure whatever uh system was going on over there so anyway he has this this problem with with the rest of the the italian immigrants in in the town they he's like known as that's the guy who hates mussolini which doesn't make him a lot of friends so <laughs> I mean, like a no. yeah um so like a month before the fire he has this weird run-in with the insurance salesman who comes to the door 
tries to sell him life insurance. And when George turns him down, he says, quote, your house will go up in smoke and your children will be destroyed. Huh. You know, that's some like terrible foreshadowing or maybe he's just a really bad salesman because that is not a great sales tactic. <laughs> well, you if know, you don't if you buy know, this, I'll kill your children. <laughs> yeah. You're going to something bad is really going to happen. Yeah. Maybe strike that something really bad is going to happen. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So then they start arguing, of course. And he ends up saying that, like, <laughs> this reason, is gonna... obviously <laughs> right. But he ends up like sort of revealing his hand, I think, because he ends up making it clear that it isn't because he isn't buying life insurance. It's because of the things he's been saying about Mussolini. That that's why his house is going to go up in smoke and ah. his children will be destroyed. Well, see, I mean, that would be an instant, like, an instant target to, to look I, into. You would think so, right? Yeah. And that's, like, the police did look into him and he was like, wasn't me. And they were like, okay. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> that was pretty much it. See you next Tuesday. Um, but he also had commented that, like... um a pair of bad fuse boxes in the house could go up and smoke at any could go up in flames at any time okay and george thought it was he pointed out that this was odd because just recently they had a bunch of wiring work done in the house when they installed like a fancy new electric stove they got like their first electric stove mm. and um and the electric company had signed off on the house's wiring said that it was all fine right um so Which is funny that eventually that's what they, they say, end like up. faulty wiring, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's where that obviously wasn't wasn't a thing. Yeah, yeah. You would think, right? Okay. That's um, and then during that month leading up, the older sons of the house they start noticing this um, dark colored sedan that keeps parking alongside the road and watching, like watching as the younger kids get off the school bus. It would like park for 10 minutes right. and then the bus comes, drops the kids off. And then after the kids are in, it takes off. And it did this over and over again in the month leading up, which is very strange. I mean, yeah, right? at least it's something you notice. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would that would be obvious. Did like did they ever report that that person being there or not until after any of this happened? I mean, they talked about it after the fire. OK, Um but I don't know if they ever reported it beforehand. Right. I mean, if someone's just parking outside of your house and not getting out or anything, I would at least be like, hey, like, there's some, like, shady person. I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're just coming around because, you know, Wi-Fi is really good in the area. <laughs> Maybe. But, you know, they're still, they're sketching me out. <laughs> yeah. You would think that, like, a gang of rough-and-tumble teenage boys in the 40s would just stroll up on the car and be like, what the fuck are you doing in front of our house? You know what I mean? I mean, that too, yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I found that odd that they were just like, oh, weird. Moving on. <laughs> I I mean, I like I, I find it weird if any new car is, in, is around my block, you know? Yeah. Like, even driving down the street. You take notice. Yeah. I mean, you'll, you'll yeah. watch them. Like, be like, okay, who are you? What are you doing? Yeah. Somebody watches a lot of true crime. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dude, it's, it's always a precursor to tragedy. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, for sure. Every time like a kid is kidnapped or like there's like a sexual assault or a murder or something, they're always like some neighbor is like, oh, yeah, 
I forgot to mention that weird car I've been seeing. Yeah. Always. See, I mean, it, you notice. Yeah, you definitely notice these things. Yeah. And if somebody's out there parked every day. Yep. I don't know. Me, I would, I would, I'd probably say something. Yeah. I think, I, yeah, I would too. Or ask like, what are you doing here? Why are you know, like, or at least report it if nothing else. Yeah. I've gone as far as like my kids know that if they see like a strange car parked in the neighborhood to like come and tell us about it, to like point it out. Yeah, because I mean, like, that's the way it should be. And we had a thing like that, like last summer, where this fucking shitty black Bronco, like a 90s Bronco, kept pulling up and parking across the street and just sitting there for like the whole afternoon. Oh, you and saw that? And it would that? do it over and over and over again. Like, and my kids were the ones who pointed it out. And then I started like going out there and like getting a look at it. <laughs> And I forgot to tell you, I was creeping outside your house for a while. Yeah. Was it you? <laughs> it was. In some shitty-ass Bronco. <laughs> yeah. But it did it for, like, I don't know, it was probably two weeks. Yeah. The dude would just that's, come and park weird. across the street. Yeah. Especially in an area that has, like, a lot of kids and stuff like exactly. that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's. And weird. our neighborhood has a ton of kids running around. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... uh. Yeah, it was a problem. And eventually my wife called the cops and reported suspicious activity and yeah. he stopped coming and hanging around. Well, good. So, yeah. Hopefully we thwarted a possible child abduction. He might have been, or I was going to say he might have been like some like creepy sexual predator that's been creeping yeah. on young kids like Yep. Yeah, like you you can't take shit like that lightly. Yeah, never. Cuz worst case scenario, the cops come and they're like, "What are you doing here?" and he has a good reason. Right. You know what I mean? Like, oh, my buddy said I could use his Wi-Fi anytime I ever wanted yeah, to. And I exactly. just had to park outside his house. Like, I'm just here on my computer. Yeah. Okay. And if it was that, whatever. <laughs> right. Park. You know what I mean? But I like, keep resorting to Wi-Fi just because that's like you know it's the most common thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, steal yeah, Wi-Fi sure. somewhere. But yeah, better safe than sorry with stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, okay. So the night of the fire, um, the the oldest daughter Marion had brought. She worked at a department store nearby, and she brought like a bunch of like treats for the kids basically like little trinket toys for them to play with on on christmas eve right and all right so some of the kids were given permission to stay up later right like they had i mean they had kids they had a 20 year old living at home a 19 year old a 16 year old and 14 year old and the rest were 12 and under so like it wasn't weird for the parents to go to bed and like the older kids yeah. basically watch the younger kids or whatever you know yeah, what I of mean? course of course so the I mean, parents at that point, go to bed you have stay in babysitters live in yeah, exactly yeah yep so the parents go to bed around 10 o'clock and about half the kids are given permission to stay up the other ones were already in bed so the the rest were given permission to stay up and so jenny wakes up at 12 30 12 30 a.m to a phone call to the phone ringing okay she goes to the phone answers it a woman asks for someone that she doesn't recognize like a random I was name say, what type of person's calling a house in the 40s at 12 30 in the morning exactly so she hears like clinking and like a bunch of voices in the background it's like maybe from like a christmas eve party or something you know what i mean okay but the woman calls she asks for someone that jenny doesn't recognize which like with 12 people living in the house odds are even a wrong number might guess a name that lives there (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. But like, she, yeah. So she tells her she has a wrong number. The woman laughs, and Jenny says it's like a weird laugh. I don't know. That's how she always described it. Just a weird laugh. And then she hangs up the phone. She, while Jenny's up, she notices that the lights are all still on and the shades haven't been drawn, which usually like when the older kids are given permission to stay up, they're expected like close up shop, right? Like make sure all the doors are locked, cover the windows, turn the lights off. So she turns all that shit off. She notices Marion sleeping on the couch and she just assumes that the younger kids were in the attic that they'd already gone to sleep. Yeah. She doesn't see them at this time, but she, you know, she now would have been a good time for her to like go check and make sure everybody's in bed. Yeah. It'd be good to have that information, but probably, probably forever. Um, but she closes (laughs) the curtains, turns out the lights and goes back to bed. Yeah. Um, later they, they find the woman who placed that phone call and she's like, yeah, it was just an honest, wrong number. It was just like really bad timing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? All right. And the police believe her. I don't know. Of course they do. (laughs) Um, Then Jenny wakes up again at one o'clock. She says she hears something hit the roof, and then she hears it roll down the the roof. Like reindeer. Yeah. (laughs) Santa Claus. (laughs) She she waits a few minutes to see if there are any, like, follow-up noises. She doesn't hear anything, so she just goes back to sleep. And then she... Which, you know, I do that all the time. I'll wake up to a random noise, and then I'm like, what the hell was that? And then if you, you know, you stay up long enough to make sure nothing's actually going on, and then you just right. go back to sleep. Yeah, of course. Um, and then she wakes up at 1.30, and this time to breaking glass, the smell of smoke, like, the fire is on. Hmm. The heat is on. It's quite the turn of events. Yeah. Did she happen to look outside to see if that car was there at all? That's No. Okay. She didn't. So now let's get to... Um, the reaction to the fire all right because this is where a lot of weird shit starts happening right um so george makes lots of attempts to to rescue the kids yeah of course right and everywhere he's going he's basically roadblocked or his yeah. vehicles won't start and can't find a ladder yeah which i also thought the vehicle thing was a little little sketch as well it's weird right yeah um first off Marion, before she even runs out of the house, she tries to pick up the phone and call, um, call to call the fire department, right? And the phone is dead. Huh. The phone line's dead. Okay. So, so she runs to the neighbors to call the fire department. She got no answer. So the neighbor had to get in their car and go find the volunteer fire chief, F.J. Morris. So there's an important aspect to this, which is. The fire department at this point was on a volunteer-only basis because most of the able-bodied men were, you know, busy fighting Nazis. Right, as a lot of, like, small towns and stuff still are. Yeah, fighting Nazis or volunteer-only? <laughs> volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. The fight's still out there. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's a lot of the men that would be or were formerly in the fire department were in, you know, the European Japanese theaters fighting World War II. So they have, what are you smirking at? (laughs) Just keep going. (laughs) So the, um, they're all volunteers and they suck. Right. They're not good at this job. It's a, like, we'll get into it in a bit, but, like, so much fuckery goes down with the fire department. I mean, it took them, what, seven full hours? Yes. 
seven so, hours. Ah, and we'll we'll get into why. Okay. I like, hope so. Yeah. So after I mean, she obviously there's a lot of shit that they're already having to go through hoops just to get somebody. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So after she runs over to call the police department, the first thing George does is barefoot. He climbs up the side of this burning house, like literally scales up the fucking gutter up the side of this house. Jesus. And he like smashes the attic window with his hand and cuts his arm. Man, yeah. And as soon as he breaks the window, smoke rolls out of the window and he falls. Ugh. Yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. So he's already fucked up. Like, you can imagine, he fell from, like, the height of their attic. Yeah. And I don't know if he, like, you know, I'm sure some things broke his fall or he caught him, so whatever. He cuts his arm on the window and falls. And then, so he, um, they usually keep their ladder leaning against the back of the house. Like, that's just where they, where they keep it. Kind of it. an odd place to keep it, but... I mean, if you don't have a garage and yeah. you use the ladder a lot, That's I guess, true. you know what I mean? Convenience. Um, yeah. Right. Um, but he, they run around to the back and it's nowhere to be found. They can't find it anywhere. Later, they find it way away from the house, which is super sketchy. Super, super sketchy. Yeah. So after the ladder thing fails, he thinks like, okay, they have this giant barrel that they use to like collect rainwater and it... He's like, we'll just use, we'll use this water, right? We'll start like bailing this water out and we'll fight the fire ourselves, right? Yeah. And old Makes school with the me. like bucket passing and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he pulls the lid off the barrel and it's frozen solid. Of course. I mean, which it's I think, middle of the winter. Right. Which isn't sketchy. It's nor- that's no, normal. That's normal. Whatever. But I mean, unless somebody took that and took it like to a, <laughs> a nice icy it. tundra. Let it freeze and then brought it back and it's like, yeah. see how what you can do next. No, it's just like one more roadblock, you know what right, I mean? One more like frustration. Um, so then he thinks, okay, I'll pull my truck around to the front of the house. He has these big cargo trucks that he uses for his business and he can't get it to start. He goes to the next truck, can't get it to start. Now, there are a couple reasons that actually make sense, right? Because he claimed like they ran just fine the day before, right? Which is fine. But this is like 1945 trucks, right? Right. Could it have been the cold weather? I was going to say it's also the middle of winter. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it makes sense to an extent. Like, Sure. I, and there's and also definitely in, a reason. And all, also in all their excitement, could they have flooded the engines? Because that was a lot easier to do back then. Yeah. Before automatic fair. fuel injection and all that. Right. Um. But still, it is weird. Like, the guy makes a living driving those trucks. You know what I mean? You'd think he'd know how to start them, even in the winter. Mm -hmm. Um, So then the fire department, like we alluded to, doesn't arrive for seven hours. Now, first off, like I said, volunteer only. These are, like, not experienced firefighters. They basically operate using, like, a phone tree. You call one guy, he calls the next guy, and they, like, go down the line, right? But it failed miserably this night. The chief, F.J. Morris, didn't actually know how to drive the fire truck. So they, once they did finally get together, they had to wait for the one, the single volunteer who knew how to drive it, and he was out of town. It sounds like they should have, I mean, 
at least maybe one or two others that know how to drive. You would think just so. Just as a fail safe. You would think the fire chief I mean, you would, would think learn so, how to right? drive the yeah. truck, right? Yeah. Um, but by the time they arrived, there was nothing to do for them except dig through the yeah. rubble. The yeah, at that point, it's been burning for seven hours. Yeah. And the house collapsed in 45 minutes. Right. It went down quick. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, and that's another thing that screams arson to me. Like, I'm definitely, I'm not like a fire investigator. But yeah. like, for a, the house to go down that fast, for it to burn that hot, you'd think accelerants. Right? Most likely. Like, that's what, that makes sense to me. Because mm-hmm. that's quick, dude. I've stood in front of my own house while it burned. Yeah. And it burned for we stood there for probably two hours watching it burn and it gutted the entire inside of the house, but the house never collapsed. Right. There were no accelerants. You know what I mean? mean, Like, and I, I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of these older houses too mm -hmm. are built to like withstand the end of the world. Right. I mean, you, (laughs) right. You have like 300 year old houses that are like super, super solid still. Yeah, that's true. And that house that I, the house of mine that I watched burn was a super old house. Yeah. It was built like 1890 or something. Yeah, see, that's, that is weird. That's definitely weird. Uh, yeah. You, I don't know. It's strange that it went down so fast. Right. At 45 minutes, I mean, that, that time alone just seems like for if even, even modern day, seems like that's, that's pretty quick. Yeah. And we'll get into that too, because when we talk about like, whether there should have been human remains if the kids were in there or not. Like how much time they actually they would have actually spent inside the fire. You right. know what I mean? With the fire going on and all that. Um, but at 10 a.m., the chief tell, told the family that they found no remains. Now, okay. another story said that the chief did find a small amount of remains and chose to bury them nearby instead of telling the family. Is the whole like town in cahoots or something? Well, this was the way it's positioned is like this was an attempt to like spare them the grisly details of like seeing the remains or whatever, which seems very not the right way to go. No, that that's not that's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like even in this story it's just a few bone fragments and some charred meat. Like that's all he finds. Yeah. But what about teeth? In that though? version of the story. Don't right. teeth like last like you can't burn teeth? I mean I'll be honest, like personally. So I have this like little bottle of my dad's ashes. Right. And like there are little chunks in there. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not like pure fine powder. Yeah. You know what I mean? There are like you get like little bigger bits of person in there. You ever just like run your like run your hands through it? Well, it's like it's in like a little glass bottle. I've never opened it. Well, I just didn't know, like, if you could, like, feel that or whatever, or if you could even see it. I can see oh, the wow. chunks, okay. like, through the bottle. There are only a couple, but yeah. it's a small amount. It's like a, it's made for, like, a necklace. Yeah, of course. Like, you can wear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, so, even in this version where he does find some remains, it's not nearly enough to be five children. Yeah. You know what I mean? Also, modern fire investigators have, like, gone on record saying that the volunteers didn't conduct an appropriately thorough investigation because n- no shit <laughs> right but the the possibility if that one story has any like accuracy or anything to it mm-hmm. um that's that's just messed up <laughs> yeah it's pretty fucked and it gets weirder just okay just right. <laughs> um 
So the official ruling was that the fire was an accident caused right. by faulty wiring. Um, the chief told the family to leave the remains of the house alone and wait for the state fire marshal to come down and conduct it, their own investigation. Right. The, f- the parents only waited four days, four days. And then they decide that they can't stand the side of it. And George bulldozed the entire site and covered it with four feet of dirt. But why? So his plan was to build like a memorial garden for the lost children where the house once stood. Right. But if, so it, if there's any doubt at all that this is, I mean, maybe at this point there wasn't, yeah. you know, there wasn't any doubt until things started kind of panning out differently. But even if there was a slight sliver of a doubt that maybe something was wrong or maybe the story was something entirely different, why would you do that? Yeah. I think at this point, it's generally accepted that like at this point, the parents hadn't hadn't gone grown suspicious yet okay like the pieces hadn't started because the pieces start to fall together for them and eventually they're like what the fuck this is not right yeah but yeah either way this was a huge mistake like he bulldozes the site drags all this dirt over it and yeah his plan is to to have like a garden to plant a bunch of flowers where the house used to be okay so the state fire marshal doesn't get to do an investigation it just doesn't because it's it's all fucked up now Right. You know what I mean? Um, I feel like had they gotten to, maybe they would have been like, hey, you know, this doesn't seem right. Yeah. There could have been more answers or at least more questions. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's stupid. Yeah. It's really stupid. Then they do the coroner's panel. So that's where they rule on whether the kids are alive or dead. Right. What the cause of death would have been, all that. And the coroner's panel ends up supporting the initial ruling. They determined that all five children had died due to accident in the fire, right? Now, this panel also had some fuckery because one of the people on this coroner's panel was the salesman who had threatened George about his house. Really? Yeah. Insurance sale- salesman by day, coroner by night. <laughs> well, like, they just... They, in this in these small towns, they just kind of they have like the coroner at the head of the panel, and right. then they have like some trusted members. They're of like the lackeys, public, yeah, basically. Okay, but this guy was on the panel. That after that's threatening shitty. to burn down the house, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, why wouldn't why wouldn't George over there be like, no, look, this guy already told me he was going to burn down my house. They didn't even know this for years. They didn't even know that he was on the panel. Wow, for years, yeah. So. It was only after the funeral for the children that the parents didn't attend, by the way, which I thought was very strange. The other siblings go to it, but the parents say they're too grief-stricken. So do the parents do it, you think? I don't... There's some weird shit with the parents. I don't know... I don't think I... I don't think I think that they did it. But not but ruling it out. I No, I can't. Okay. Right. Because they're fucking weird. I mean, that is weird. Yeah. They're, and it might just be like the, a social disconnect between 2023 and 1945, but like, why they're you, weird to me. Yeah. But why would you not go to your own, even if it's like just some like. Too sad. <laughs> some like candlelight vigil or something, right? That's just like there to support. Yeah. These, your children. It seems weird. Oh my yeah. God. So after the funeral, they start questioning things. Like, if the fire was caused by fault, faulty wiring, 
How did their Christmas lights stay on during the fire? Because they all have specific memories of the Christmas lights still being lit as they were running out of the house and as they were fighting the fire. You'd think if it was faulty wiring, the house would have lost right, power. Right, if it was like a, a right. fuse panel box or something that like yep. went up in flames, yeah, that's going to trigger all those fuses to... Yeah, to blow. To blow, exactly. Yep. Yeah. All right. Then also they found the ladder, like we talked about. Like someone had intentionally removed it from the scene. Unless which maybe is very the kids sketchy. like were down playing in this ravine or whatever this little area is. Yeah. Playing shoots and ladders <laughs> IRL. Playing ladder and ladder. <laughs> uh, so snakes then, and ladders? Uh, is that a thing? <laughs> the, there were definitely snakes in West Virginia. There you go. So snakes and ladders. That's it. That's why I was there. Um, <laughs> a telephone repairman told them that the phone line had not been melted by the fire it had been cut now if it's cut there's some form of foul play right right so adding to that neighbors told them that they saw a man skulking around and stealing some equipment from the property the guy was found by the police and arrested he admitted to the theft and said that he had cut the phone line thinking it was a power line he denied having anything to do with the fire and there was no actual okay so he denies he admits to the theft but denies having anything to do with the fire okay he cuts the phone line they arrest him for it this is the story right first of all traditional phone line yep versus something much heavier power line yeah which is a very very completely different type of cable or wiring yeah it's like a 240 cable that runs into a house i think that's yeah that seems a little sus to me though right Maybe he was just really bad at it. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> he just didn't have time. any idea what he was doing. <laughs> but um, the thing is with this story, because this is like an accepted part of the narrative, this guy, right? All right. When the family, because apparently police did a lot less actual communicating with victims back then. Yeah. A lot less. So years later, the kids, I'm talking about after the parents are dead and the kids are still following leads and stuff. Yeah. They get in contact with the police department because they keep hearing about this guy. Like people are telling this as part of the story. Yeah. And there is no actual evidence or record that this guy ever existed, that he was ever arrested for it, that he really, that they ever even followed a lead on it. Yeah. Hmm. It's just an odd part of the story that I feel like it, maybe it just got added over the years over the years yeah possibly yeah it seems a little too specific to be yeah that's what i thought Hmm. okay maybe it was like one of the one of the policemen's cousins and they end up just scrubbing the record not you know what i mean yeah i mean yeah if you're in tight with the police so you have a surefire way out of it anything you want especially back then in a tiny town you know what i mean that still happens today what are you talking about I know, but I'm sure it was much easier for them to do back then. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean. Like, yeah. So they could sweep anything under the rug back then. Yeah, a lot of a lot of fuckery went on in the U.S. during the war because well, of course. heads were turned in the other direction. Yeah, you know what I mean. And Everybody else yeah. was preoccupied, and yep, a lot of crazy business practices. Mm-hmm. A lot of the like slimy dudes who got out of going to the war stayed here and kept being slimy you know what i mean well yeah once a slime always a slime is what i always say yeah that's that's a fair assumption i know you've heard me say that at least a few times at least (laughs) (laughs) oh boy yeah so this guy that's weird 
and it's it is weird. It's weird that there was not not any record of of that. Yeah, yeah, they just scrubbed it completely. If it happened, right. obviously we don't know because there's no record. But yeah, yeah. So while they were bulldozing the house, the the rubble, they ended up finding a bunch of appliances and even furniture that was still recognizable after the fire. Okay. Like in the rubble. Yeah. So their question was like, how could the fire be destructive enough to leave no remains of the kids, but to leave behind like a recliner? You know what I mean? That's, that's a good question. Yeah. It's weird. It's very weird. Like, and the wife also, Jenny, she read a newspaper story about a similar fire that happened in, I think Virginia, a neighboring state. And, um, where they found the skeletal remains of the entire family in the house. And they like, it was like a central part of the newspaper article because they were found like, it was very tragic. They found the like skeletal remains of the whole family like huddled together in one room. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah, it's like, it's a very sad story. But like, that stood out to her. And that's why they talked about the remains being discovered because it was, you know, sensational and tragic. Yeah. Of course. But like, so that. I think that's what really got her like, well, why wouldn't they find any in our house, right? At least something, right. I mean, yeah, yeah that that's that although I mean him covering everything doesn't help, but uh Yeah, definitely didn't help. It so yeah, it's it pretty be much like hampered something. it hampered investigation for sure afterward. But um so I looked it up for like the stats for crematoriums. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was curious, like could it really have turned all the kids to ashes in a house fire? Mm-hmm. Right? So cremating a human takes 90 to 120 minutes, like an hour and a half to two hours. And that's at 1400 to 1800 degrees. Okay. The average house fire burns between 1500 and 3000 degrees, depending on what's in the house, of course. Yeah. Right. And whether or not there are accelerants, the hottest part is always at the top of the house. So my question is like, if the house had fallen into a pile of rubble in 45 minutes, like we can assume that it burned hot, but fast. Right. Of course. Right. So like, even if it was a higher temperature, you're talking about it, them being exposed to that higher temperature for a much shorter amount of time. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, it's like they would have to be nuking it at that point. Yeah. But yeah, Yeah. that like the timing doesn't make sense. And that was, and that was, that was kind of what I was thinking as well Is like, there's no way that amount of time could have completely gotten rid of any yeah you know, any type of remains or anything yeah i mean that i mean it did say that the hottest part is always at the top of the house fire and that's where they were but right. they wouldn't have been at the top for long right cuz the the floors start collapsing right they they would have fallen to the to the middle and the bottom of the fire yeah. fairly quickly and by the time they by the time the parents even woke up, the stairs were already on fire, like to the top. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been long before they were no longer at the top of the fire. Exactly. So you're talking about maybe a half an hour exposed to, you know, those high temperatures instead of the two hours it takes to cremate a body. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. I think the math doesn't work out. For yeah, that. I agree. For sure. Right. Yeah, that's I mean. Also, an incinerator is a very tight, enclosed area too. Yeah, it's concentrated heat. Exactly on the on the body. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even this fire is going to be dispersed in different areas and there's different areas going to burn faster than others or whatever else. So, yep. Cooler there, hotter there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that doesn't line up or add up at all. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so then we get into later accounts, right? right? So these are some of the things that come in pretty quickly after the fire. So a bus driver that's passing through that night told police that he saw people throwing balls of fire at the house like Molotov cocktails yeah I was gonna say yeah okay later while they're planting the garden the baby the two-year-old I think she's three by now but um she finds this strange small green like rubber ball like the size of a hand grenade and George said that it looked like a pineapple bomb like an unexploded pineapple bomb that basically like a pipe bomb right right um then one woman said she saw the missing children in a passing car as the house was burning so she reported that to the police you think it was the kids that torched the house no no (laughs) i i think if if her if she really did see them they were probably being taken they were in the process of being taken right that's fair um Another woman calls the police and says that she served the missing children breakfast on Christmas morning while working at a diner between Fayetteville and Charleston. That they got out of a car with Florida license plates. Huh. Yeah. All right. So, like, there are a couple eyewitness reports that come in pretty quickly that point to maybe the kids being kidnapped. Yeah. Right? At least they were nice enough to feed them. Right? Take them out to breakfast. That's nice. Become friends, this, you know, share life stories. This actually, this actually points to a weird lead that George follows later. Um, he eventually, let me find it. There's so much. All right. Um, sorry. No worries. Um, so later, much later, like years later, George hears a report that a relative of his wife's in Florida had children that looked exactly like his. Oh, really? Okay. And he actually drives down to Florida and makes her prove that her children are hers. <laughs> like that's, it's a little weird, dude. George goes crazy. I mean, like legit, maybe I know it'd be hard not to. I, right, right. Exactly. But I'm still like, maybe the parents were involved or maybe he was. And then the house made him do it. It's like Amityville <laughs> style. And then once right. he was finally out of the house, he's back to himself and realizing all the stuff that's going on. Has no recollection right. of anything that happened previously. Some like Fight Club shit, maybe. Like yeah. he doesn't realize he's also the villain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, George is Tyler Durden. Exactly. Yep. Um, this okay, whole so time, the, mind blown. Right. Yeah. <sighs> and there's the twist. <laughs> yeah. No. Eventually, they hire a private investigator. Right. This guy with an awesome i mean this era you get some of the coolest names ever yeah this guy's name is cc tinsley <laughs> private investigator pi tinsley that's right that's um, pretty damn cool actually right i could see him having his own show these days on cw yeah it's like a film noir yeah type, yeah um okay so he's this private eye is the guy who finds out that the salesman who threatened george was on the coroner's panel that's how they find out so this is like, you know, multiple years after the fire. Right. Um, he also, and this is where it gets super weird with the the fucking fire chief. Okay. He found reports that Chief Morris had found bones and organs in the fire. 
that he had packed them into a cookie tin and buried them near the house. Okay. This is what we talked about earlier. Right. Right. With him hiding the remains. Apparently, the chief had confessed this to a local minister who later spilled the beans to the PI. Okay. George and Tinsley confronted the chief about it and he admitted it. He took oh. them to where he took them to where he had buried it. Okay. They dig it up and they take the tin to a local funeral director who said that the contents were a beef liver and small animal bones. Huh. Yeah. The funeral director also says that the contents of the tin had never been exposed to fire. Then this is where it gets super weird and makes no sense at all. Later reports said the chief admitted that the tin and its contents were fake, that he had put it in there in hopes that showing George would get him to finally accept that his kids were dead. But he decides to bury it for some odd years. Well, they like, okay, so the story he gives is they confront him about it, right? About him, the story of him burying remains. And he's like, yeah, 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 okay, I did it. I'll take you there tomorrow. All right. I'll take you tomorrow. And then he goes and buries this beef liver and animal bones so that he can take them the next day to dig it up. Yeah. So do you think there's still maybe another Seth that he never showed him? You'd think if it was really there, he would have just showed them that. You know what I mean? Yeah, unless like he's like feeling like, okay, I can't do this now because whatever. Maybe he forgot So let me just go take it. last night's leftovers and throw them into a tin and bury it. <laughs> it's like chicken, chicken bones and a beef liver. <laughs> right, exactly. Here are your kids, bud. <clears throat> yeah. It's so odd. It's really it's odd. It's just so... It's just a weird, twisted thing with the fire chief. It doesn't make any sense to me. Agreed. Like, did he bury it? Did he not bury it, but then pretend to have buried it? Did he want... Because initially, he's, like, trying to save their feelings, but then he's like, oh, I fucked up, I didn't show them, and now they think it's that they didn't die. Right. I don't don't know. It's so complicated. (sighs) I don't know either. And that's... It's just... that's, That's weird. Yeah. I actually put in parentheses in my notes, fucking bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It's very strange. Okay. So after this, they attempt to get the FBI involved. Right. George starts writing letters to the FBI and he actually gets responses from the director of the FBI directly, J. Edgar Hoover. He responds to him directly and he says, quote, although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Like, he basically tells him that if the local authorities ask for help, they'll help. But they can't just step Otherwise, in. Otherwise, right. Yeah. And the local authorities say, nah, we don't need you. Of course got they do. This. Yeah. Then we have this crazy list of false leads that George goes on. Right. So what was, there was a, there was a photo that was sent that was received. Yep. Yeah. We'll, yeah. We're going to get to that. Okay. For sure. All right. Um. So, first, George sees a magazine article about a ballet school in New York. One of the girls in the photo looked like his five-year-old daughter, Betty. So he drives all the way to New York and demands to meet the girl. What a creeper. They removed him from the property, because of course they did. Of course. (laughs) So weird. Imagine that conversation. Where did you find this child? Exactly. How fucking weird. Okay. Um, In 1949... He convinces a D.C. pathologist, a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar Hunter to conduct a new search of the grounds. Okay. Right. They find in the 
buried over rubble. They find a dictionary and coins that George and Jenny agree came from the attic, and they were intact. A dictionary. Okay. Um, They also find several small human vertebrae bones in the rubble. So the pathologist says they're lumbar vertebrae from one person. They're all from one person, aged somewhere between 16 and 22 years old. Hmm. But wasn't the youngest 15? 14. Or 14? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The bones didn't show any sign of being exposed to fire. The pathologist said that he was sure that... And this is kind of a big thing for me. So the pathologist, the one thing he does that actually ends up mattering is he goes on record saying that he's confident that a wood fire of such a short duration would have left full skeletons of the children behind. Yeah. Like, wouldn't have destroyed any of the bones. But they decide that the bones that they found most likely came from the dirt that George used to cover the site. Mm, okay. Because apparently there was an old, a very old unmarked cemetery next door to their property, and that's where he got the dirt to cover the site. Man, he's just making the job even harder for himself and for everybody else. Yeah. That's a bad look, George. <laughs> <laughs> really? Let me just dig up this old cemetery. <clears throat> All right. So with this, the state officially closed the case. But since the state had the case for a minute, the FBI finally decided to jump in. And they followed leads for two years to no end. And then they eventually closed it on a federal level after two years of investigating. But the family didn't give up. They handed out flyers. They offered a $10,000 reward for any information that led to the kids. Um, And they put up this billboard on US-60 that became, like, famous. Okay. Like, it became, like, a famous landmark because it was up on the highway for, like, 45 years. And, like, everyone knew, like, the solder billboard. And it has, like, a picture of each of the kids on it. And it has, like the general information and it talks about the reward all right which i think they eventually lowered to five thousand. i think as the family got a little poorer i mean yeah spending all these years investigating into it of course yeah so ida crutchfield was a woman who ran a hotel in charleston and she claimed to have seen the kids about a week after the fire she said the kids came in around midnight with two italian men she said she tried to speak to the kids But one of the men, like, shot her a dirty look and started speaking, like, yelling at the kids in Italian. And they all clammed up and stopped talking to her. Okay. Um, And that they left the the next morning. Most people don't consider her story super credible because it came, like, years later after the reward was offered. Um, But, so, there was a report that Martha was being held in a coven, in a coven in, like, a, what is it, like a nunnery? basically all right in in st louis george went and investigated drove to st louis nothing there was a report from a guy that supposedly overheard two men in a bar discussing a fire on christmas eve in west virginia george drove all the way to texas to investigate and nothing um there was the report about jenny's relative he drove down to florida and made her prove that her kids belonged to her and turns out they did okay of course um then there was a report from a woman that a man had revealed his true identity as Lewis Sauter. She believed that he and his brother Maurice were living there in Texas. George and his son-in-law drove down to Texas to investigate. They couldn't find the woman who gave the initial tip, but the police down there helped them find the two guys in question. Okay. Um, but they denied it. They denied that they were they were Lewis and 
Maurice. Right. I don't know if this was like some kind of weird, maybe they were just like using it to pick up chicks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's one way to do it, I guess. Yeah, that's a creative approach. Yeah. But George George said, like, even into his old age, that he doubted that denial. Like he felt like they were they were them. Alright. I don't I don't know why they would deny it. Like I mean you know. If you were kidnapped as a young kid and then your dad shows up at your doorstep like twenty years later or ten years later, are you gonna be like, No, that's not me? Unless their captors told them. If you ever contact your family again, blah, 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 we'll kill every one of them. We'll just kill the rest of them? Yeah. Yeah. Then maybe for the sake of the family, they're like, okay. Maybe they'd been fully brainwashed. That too. Right. That's a possibility. Yeah. Okay. So then there's the letter. Right. So they get this picture. It's, um, this one's weird, dude. It almost feels like, like a Silent Hill clue. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so they get this picture. It's, it comes from, it's postmarked from... Um, what is it? Central City, Kentucky. Okay. Um, and on the back of the, it's like a picture of two dudes. And on the back, it says, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, I L I L boys. And then, I Lil. A, yeah, I Lil boys. <laughs> um, A90132 or 35. They couldn't decide if it was a 32 or, or if it right. was a two or a five on the end. Um, but yeah, that's that's it. And they believed this one so much that they added it to the billboard. Like they added the photograph to the billboard as like an update of what they yeah. looked like. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's intense. Like that's how much they thought like oh shit, this is a picture of right. of Lewis and yeah. But what what happened? Like did they follow up or So they hire a second private investigator. Okay. A new private investigator to investigate but the guy takes their money and never comes back. So, Did they ever hire the first PI to track down the second PI? <laughs> right, they should have. Yeah. They should have brought Tensley back. <laughs> he seemed like a good man. I mean, I would say. Um, yeah, so nothing ever comes. They can't find the sender of the letter on their own. That's why they hired the PI. Okay. And then when the PI just takes off, I don't know. But in 1969, George Sauter died. Um it's said that Jenny Sauter wore black every day for the rest of her life, like in mourning for her kids. All right. Um, which is pretty sad yeah. and dark. 20 years later in 1989, Jenny Sauter died. So she Neither survived the whole ever. 20 years after. Okay. Yeah. And both of them died without knowing what happened to their kids, which is fucking tragic. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. It's, um, and then just two years ago in, um, March of 2021, the youngest Sauter that was there in the house, Sylvia, died. She was the last remaining member of the family that was there for the fire. Yeah, and of course, any of the older ones are the ones that didn't make it out. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, probably didn't survive. They would have been pe- any longer yep. than that. Yeah, Dang. yeah. And Sylvia talked like in interviews about how it's her earliest memory was the fire, and yeah she passed in 2021 so they're all gone now um but the billboard was up from from like a month after or six i don't know a couple months after it happened until um jenny died in 1989 wow yeah that's a that's a long time yeah it was up for like 40 years dude yeah yeah and never never found any closure nothing nope it's crazy i know there are 
there are a few theories we can talk about. Yeah. So I know one of I know you had mentioned, of course, over the years. There's now like once the age of the internet hit, there were a lot of people that started investigating themselves and oh yeah, looking into a lot of these. Did anything pan out from that at all? No. Okay. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. I mean, nothing it's still <laughs> it's still like a full blown mystery. Yeah. Like. And with these really old cold cases, you get less information over time instead of more. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, evidence disappears, fucking it, witnesses die. Like, it just gets harder and harder as time goes by. It's crazy. One of the big theories is the Sicilian Mafia, because it was very strong during World War II. And like I mentioned at the top, George did not have a lot of friends in that group of people right of course um so one of the main theories is that this was like a message for george to george for his anti-mussolini you know sentiments that's just ridiculous i mean like some some radical groups that just become so crazy and set in what they're fighting for like to go to i don't know such lengths i think is yeah it's pathetic i mean the italian mafia has been known to do some pretty fucking wild shit you know what I mean? Well, then they like, need to get their shit together. If you a message to the mafia, <laughs> <laughs> and if I'm not here next week, you know why? Yeah, exactly. No, but they'll like you know there are reports of all kinds of cra- I mean, there's crazy shit. I mean, of like course, you cross yeah. the mob and you wake up with like your wife's head in your bed, <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like there's crazy dark shit. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I wouldn't. You know put it past yeah, the mafia I mean, to throw a few Molotovs on a roof. Right. You know? Or to even steal the kids. And, yeah. Mm. I honestly don't think the kids were in the fire. I mean, it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. Like, the fact that nothing was found and that's, I mean, to me, and again, just watching and reading into a lot of different cases and especially, like, you know, houses that burn down with people inside them, there's always some trace yeah, generally. Of bodies, or some, you know, some, right. Yeah. And for there to be absolutely nothing in this case just makes no sense at all. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, And a lot of people get caught up because, like, the kids dying in the fire or not, and it being foul play or not, are not mutually exclusive. Like, it could be either combination of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the kids could have died in the fire, and it's still foul play. Yeah, true. Right? And the kids could have been kidnapped, and it still be foul play. Yeah. It could have been either way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's also the... Another thing that kind of reads mafia to me is the stuff with the insurance salesman. I mean, yeah. Like, that could have been, like, a thinly veiled attempt at extortion, right? Like, protection money. Right. I mean, there's the, uh, there's the episode of The Office where... Michael gets the insurance salesman that tries to come and sell him insurance and then everybody at the office tells him that he's like a member of the mob and he's trying to like <laughs> shake him down basically to to sell insurance. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. Probably what that was based on. Because like imagine he shows up at the door and he's there to get protection money basically. Yeah. Right. And when George turns him down he's like well you know your house could burn down at any time. Like, that's pretty classic, like, you know, mob bullying, right? Especially with George being, like, a local business owner. Yeah, I mean, that's true. He that's would be true. a target for yep. that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's sad. That's how it feels to yeah, me. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I have to agree. 
Like, that's yeah. them also seeing, like, people in the yard, people see them, like, the kids seeing the car parked outside, yeah. the issues with the insurance guy, the fact that there's no remains of any sort or any kind, and, you know, these, like, random leads that never seem to pan out but the fact that yeah that that cup you know the couple that he ends up running into that refuse that they're part of anything or whatever yeah there as a as, you know to protect them or whatever else like yeah that could very well be sure exactly what went on here yeah could have been just because he was very open about his i don't know the side that he part you know the side yeah. that he he picked i guess supported right yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean That's crazy, man. There are some there are some wilder theories, which I like. Alright. Um there's one that the FBI was trying to wipe out the mafia during this time, which they were. They were like on a full blown attack I mean, against yeah, the course. mob during the war. Um and either they believed George was part of the mafia or he was. Yeah. And this was basically a like ah. failed attempt to wipe out his whole family by the fbi (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like the idea of george being a part of the mafia i mean just yeah secretly he's like this yeah yeah he's like a double agent for the mafia yeah wow that explained why they had 10 kids right (laughs) um i think uh the lack of available birth control is what explains why they had 10 kids i mean give or take come on yeah um, there's also a theory that the parents actually sent the kids away because they couldn't afford them anymore. Um, and this was all like uh, an attempt to cover up the fact that yeah. they had. I mean, but that'd I be a some... little weird. I, why would you have to do that? Why wouldn't you say, yeah, they went to stay with Uncle Frank on his farm? Well, basically, they would have sent them in this theory. They send them to like an orphanage, basically. Ah, okay. Not with like a relative. Yeah. Uh, huh. I don't know. I don't know. That is. That just doesn't seem... I mean, That seems the, too easy. The, the obvious weird thing there is why would they spend their whole lives following leads and putting up billboards and yeah, offering rewards yeah, for them? Right. If, they would have just accepted the the official story yeah, and moved like, on. Yeah, like, oh, okay. They, they burned out. Yeah. So I don't, I don't buy that one at all. It doesn't no. make sense. They were way too invested, I think. Yeah, agreed. Honestly, I fall on the mafia. That, to me, makes the most sense. Like, yeah, it was a mafia hit. Yeah. And like, now, I don't know if they kidnapped the kids and killed them, kidnapped the kids, and maybe it was like a... Now, I was going to say maybe it was like a, a thing where it's like, don't tell the cops, you got to, you know, ransom type shit. But then, they again, they wouldn't have spent decades looking for them if they knew what happened. I mean, unless it was another means of covering covering everything up and try and tur- trying to turn everyone against that possibility right yeah yeah and that way the mafia can get out of it and then they may have like promised them hey maybe you'll get to see your children one day but you have to go like whatever i don't yeah i don't know i i feel like they if they would have kidnapped the kids i don't know why would they kidnap the kids that's the question right only some of them yeah and the ones farthest away from the front door right i mean that ladder though yeah yeah i don't know I don't know. Yeah, that that's your guess is as good as mine on that. Yeah, it's weird because the mafia makes so much sense until it gets to the fact that the kids weren't in the fucking house. Right, like, someone had to have taken them. Yeah, and like, why would the mafia want five random fucking kids? You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe the leader of the mafia couldn't have kids. 
Maybe. I think I'll just raise them myself. Or chose to chose them to start doing their bidding, you know? Or maybe their plan was to spare the children and they didn't realize how many fucking kids were in the house. Yeah, that's possible. I don't know, maybe some honor among thieves or something. They just wanted to burn the house. I mean, they, it was all the oldest kids that survived except for the baby. And that's because the baby was asleep in bed with the parents. See, that to me seems like there's there's something else there. Yeah. That maybe George knew about. And they had to turn this thing around. You think so? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. I, I'm just, you know, I'm throwing ideas out there, but... This one's tough. You have to just, like, you you have to speculate. Because right. nothing makes sense. You know what I mean? There's nothing pointing to an obvious conclusion. I'm going to say George knew. Okay. He had some ties. Maybe he had to take a loan for his business. And these were, like, loan sharks that were provided by the mafia yeah and as collateral they took the children okay. and he was never able to you know, pay back, back or whatever else I, I don't know again all the investigation into it for all the years yeah I don't know that's weird that's what I mean you have to just start kind of making things up right. for any of it to make sense yep. right you have to like start writing a movie script for it yeah. to make any sense of course yeah I don't know, but this is a really, I don't know. I was fascinated by this. Yeah, it's like, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's an awesome one. Is yeah. It another a one of those. Mystery. Just, right. We'll never, well, I don't think we'll ever know, but, uh, as a, like as a parent, I found it incredibly unsettling. Yeah. Like the idea of just never knowing. I mean, yeah, you know, of course it's pretty horrifying. Yeah. That's, that would make it. I mean, from the perspective of a parent, it's always going to make things harder. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Imagine George going his whole life. If it was a mafia hit, right? Imagine him going his whole life knowing that, like, if I just gave that guy a hundred bucks that day. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, like, and maybe it's this this way to de- to deter authorities and... This never works out in his favor. But yeah, had he slipped him that money that day. Yeah, maybe it could have all been avoided. Yep. And this might have been an ongoing thing for a while. That's harsh. Yeah, it is. It's tough. It's tough for sure. You know, what can you do, right? Yeah, I think that's where we're at. Um, Agreed. There's... There's no obvious answer, but it feels mafia to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's. I think there's... It's not even just your run-of-the-mill bad guy. No. There's too much. No. There's too much at play there. Yep. Agreed. All right. I think uh, that concludes episode 105, The Sauter Family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. 
And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time. I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown.